it's one of the biggest cliches going about the the journey being the important part, not the destination. But um, it took me took me a few years and a few, you know, nearly two thousand miles in Antarctica to to figure that one out. This is the resilient from FlowerApp.com. I'm Alex Kratoski, and in this episode, the story of what happens when you finally reach your goals, but the world around you stays the same. So my name's Ben Saunders. I am, I never know, people ask me what I do, I, I never know what to say now. <laughs> I wear a lot of hats. So I, I'm usually introduced as a polar explorer, which which sounds very grand. And it sounds kind of Edwardian as well. It doesn't sound very progressive or, or, or 20, 21st century. But I've spent uh, 15 years now leading uh, polar expeditions. So mostly in the high Arctic, but, but one big one in Antarctica. Uh, so 11 expeditions in total in that period. Ben's most recent expedition was a challenge, even for him. And what happened there ushered in the greatest transformation of his life. So we finished uh, February 2014. So it was, uh, there were two of us. My, my teammate uh, has a wonderful name, an old friend of mine. He's called Tarka Le Penier, um, the toughest person I know on earth. And he and I very simply walked from the coast of Antarctica, a place called Ross Island on the, on the New Zealand side of Antarctica, to the South Pole, where we turned around and walked back again. Um, it was 1800 and, 1,801 miles, I found out recently. We just had a confirmation. Um, 108 days, long, longest ever polar journey on foot. So it was a big, big, long, tough camping trip. I, I don't want to sound too conceited, but it, I would say it was one of the most ambitious polar expeditions in the last couple of decades. It was a big, big project. Logistically very complex, therefore very expensive. It was about $2.5 million in total, the, the bill for the entire project. So big thing to plan, big thing to organize, and um, a, a you know, very challenging journey from, from a human sense. You know, we covered 1,800 miles, 69 marathons back to back. We were pulling 440 pounds each at the start, So uh, and, and temperatures... Um, down to well, re, re, the lowest ambient air temperature we recorded was minus 48 uh, centigrade. So that's uh, like 50, negative 55-ish Fahrenheit. So it was it was chilly. You know, wind chill down to minus 70 centigrade. So about minus 95 Fahrenheit. So it's, it, it was it was a tough trip. What do you think in the in the week before you set out? Apart from obviously lo- the logistics and and you know making sure all of the to-do list is is covered. What do you, where, where are you emotionally just before you set out? I think it's probably a good thing that, in every sense, not just emotionally, we're normally so busy in the last few days that there isn't much time to sort of pause and reflect on the enormity and perhaps the stupidity of what you're about to do. I mean, the whole thing was was, was sensory overload and emotional overload, you know, getting to Antarctica. And you know, again, it's kind of stress and busyness and lots of things to, to, to organise and to sort out. But there, there was this peculiar moment. We, we were allowed into. Captain Scott's hut, um, the Terranova hut, which is on the shore of Ross Island, deep frozen all year round. And we had, I guess, about half an hour, 40 minutes there. And I don't normally get that emotional, you know, looking around museums and looking at her stuff. But, but there was something about this this place and seeing... I mean, it looks like these guys left a few minutes ago. It's extraordinary. And, um, and I had this enormous wave of fear and 
absolute self-doubt and this feeling of thinking what on earth am i doing here what you know ben you, you are in big trouble now like this is this is the journey that defeated two of the greatest icons certainly certainly in british polar history you know serena shackleton captain scott both of them defeated scott was killed by this uh, and his men all, you know all four teammates of his and um no one's attempted it since and who the hell are you to think you can t you know sunny this is like my self-talk you know <laughs> So I just suddenly thought, oh my God, what am I doing here? Like, shit, how do I, how do I get out of this? Like, what, what, what was I thinking? So there was a, definitely a moment of, the, of this sort of realization and, and of the scale of the commitment that I was, that I was, you know, signed up to. Have you ever had that kind of degree of self-doubt before? Perhaps not with regards an expedition, you know, in the middle of Antarctica or, or wherever, but perhaps something else that you've that you've faced and you suddenly think, oh my God, what the hell am I doing? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it, I think with anything worthwhile, there's, there's always that, that moment of, um, uh, how do you describe it, of, of, of sort of commitment and of, and of, and of things gathering inertia and suddenly you're, suddenly you're locked into the trajectory that you're on. And, and it could be as simple as, I don't know, like asking a girl out or, you know, <laughs> school disco, age 12, whatever, you know, kind of. Like, and so, I, so I have enough... I've got enough experience now to look back and think, okay, well, that feeling, I've had that before, and, and generally it's worth kind of persevering through that. That's not, it's not unusual. You've spent your career not giving up, which is why you've ended up in this world record-holding position. As an athlete, you know, as an explorer, you have pushed extraordinary boundaries. You've never given up, or have you? What is the best reason to give up? Well, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I was giving up, but, but I've definitely... Definitely had to compromise, and and in a pretty major way on on the last big expedition. So, to rewind slightly, the the idea was always to make a return journey to the South Pole on foot. It had never been done, i.e., from the very coast, um, on on the route that we were travelling. This journey had been un, unfinished, you know, since Scott's death in 1912. So, it was a project that had a, a enormous um, historical significance to it. And our plan, very simply, was to start from the coast, pulling everything, walk to the South Pole, following Scott's route and Shackleton's route, um, uh, and then turn around and walk back. And, and, and because we are going out and back along the same route, we could leave, literally bury little caches, little sort of depots on, on the way out, um, and then follow the supply chain back to the coast on, on the way home again. So, um, so we left 10 depots of food and fuel. Now, the fuel is just for, the, for our cooker, so we can melt snow to get drinking water. Um, and uh, we left ten of them. The last one, the last depot, was quite a long way from the pole. Thinking, uh, it's it's it should be midsummer. So the weather, well, it is midsummer. So the weather should be good. Um, the sledges will be empty. We've left all the depots, eaten all the food. So we'll be fast. Um, we'll have we'll have the sort of mental boost bonus of, of of reaching the south pole. Turning around, you've broken the back of the journey. You're heading home. We should, in theory, have the wind behind us because we can get, we were going into the wind the whole way. We're going downhill slightly, you know, for bits of it, heading back to the coast again. So, so we should have had all these things stacked in our favour. So we left the last depot quite a long way from the pole. They found out that there is an Antarctic version of Murphy's Law. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. As they turned around at the pole, the wind turned around with them, so they were still going into a headwind. The weather closed in. They had terrible visibility and very low temperatures. They were going much slower than they'd anticipated. We realised after a few days that we were going to run out. This was after we turned around the pole. We were going to run out of food completely before we reached this first depot. So we decided to sort of halve the rations that we had, which was 
physically and mentally very tough because we're hungry anyway. I mean, the food didn't feel like enough even at 6,000 calories a day. So, so suddenly with 3,000, you're having to, you know, have a little like half an energy bar every hour and a half and just the energy drinks were watered down. It was just miserable. Physically, they went downhill very quickly. And because of the bad weather, they became much more susceptible to hypothermia. Our physical condition just got to a point where it was really dangerous. We were not well. Um, we were just pushing ourselves w way beyond anything that I considered safe. And uh, we finally, finally got to a point where we were 33 miles short of the depot, which is, in the scheme of a, in the grand scheme of an 1,800-mile journey, is, is, is a nothing. It's a fraction. And we had half a day's food left, and that was it. So no reserve. There was no safety margin. There were no, you know, we had no emergency rations. We had half a day's food left, and that was it. And there was this weird feeling of... Um, of exposure. We were on the Antarctic Plateau, middle of nowhere, might as well be on the surface of Pluto or something, with just the extraordinary feeling of being in real danger. And I hadn't, this probably sounds odd, but I hadn't really expected that, to be facing that amount of risk. I'd seen this as a relatively benign, relatively safe trip compared to the solo stuff I'd done on the North Pole. You're looking out for polar bears, you're traveling over the frozen surface of the sea, it's all moving around you, it's all quite scary. So this seemed quite safe. This is you're travelling over land. There's a big American base at the South Pole. They've got a big cafe. You know, I mean, what's that? we were only a few days' travel away from there. But um, but suddenly we were in real danger. The night before they set off on that long, long leg, Tarka had been severely hypothermic. He didn't know where he was, and Ben had to put up the tent for both of them and help his teammate into his sleeping bag. It was scary. But despite that, they set off the next day, thinking 33 miles, that'll be a big day, but they'll be fine. 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 We'd sort of swap over the lead every 45 minutes in Tarka when we swapped over. He said, um, uh, and this is sort of Tarka speak, because he's the most stoic person. He said, I, he said, I can feel my legs going, which is basically Tarka saying, look, I'm screwed. Um, and... I remember asking him, I said, what do you think we should do? And then as soon as I said that, I realized that actually I had to, you know, really, I'm, I'm in charge here and I need to make a decision pretty quickly. And I decided straight away that we would put the tent up. Um, I didn't want to push any, any further, any harder. And we could have quit, I guess, then. We could have called for a plane to pick us up and take us home. But um, I thought, you know what, I'm going I'm to call for a plane to bring us some more food, bring us another week's worth of rations, and that means we've got a bit of safety margin we can make it to the depot, we can scoff a couple of days of food in the tent, have a rest day, and then carry on. But it felt like, um, felt like failure, felt like defeat, because my dream had been to make this journey with no support, um, you know, dragging everything ourselves from the coast to the pole, back to the coast again, which, which is something that a lot of experts were saying was impossible. And in some ways was, was, was very different to Shackleton or Scott or Amundsen's expedition, where, where they were heavily supported. They had big, big teams, you know, pre-positioning depots of food and things. So pulling everything was 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 um, was kind of way out there on the challenge front, and um, it represented the, the absolute sort of embodiment of everything I was passionate about. And it, and it was it was like the ultimate expedition, and we were so close to to pulling it off flawlessly, and and suddenly it was compromised. You know, we were calling for help. We were becoming a, a supported expedition, so which sounds like semantics, but it was a big, you know, it was a big deal at the time. And interestingly, it, it sort of brought me face to face with a few things. One of them was, was I think, this sort of sense of perfectionism and uh, this longing finally to 
you know, to produce some sort of perfect um, embodiment of everything I was passionate about, which, which this expedition seems so close to, to doing. You might not be surprised to hear that Ben's first realisation was the product of a lifetime of drive. I definitely, I was quite, I was very ambitious. I had um, a whole slew of, of kind of uh, completely over-the-top macho male role models who were mostly explorers or mountaineers or yacht racers. That was what I wanted to do. They were, they were guys who were at the top of their field and they were changing the game and rewriting the rule books and raising the bar. And, I, and that's what I wanted to do, to, to be a groundbreaker and, a, and, a, and a, you know, someone, someone doing something pioneering and something remarkable. And that was, that was definitely the, the aspiration. There was this yearning to kind of do something and to be something and to prove myself and to somehow sort of earn, I don't know what, you know, respect or status. I'm not sure what it was really, but um, there was definitely this, this extraordinary drive. And I think some of that came from a, a sense of lack, like, like, like something was missing, like some, I don't know, whether it's whether it's self-esteem or what you'd call it really but there was definitely it was like I, I had to do something and prove something in order to be a sort of worthy human being I guess so there, there was this extraordinary drive and so the second realization that he had in the middle of the tundra was a profound experience I don't know this this, this idea of, of ultimately doing the right thing which was putting our welfare um, our health our survival in, in front of any daft goal that I'd had to make this journey in a certain fashion um, and you know and taking care of my friend and my teammate in the middle of nowhere two guys in facing a lot of danger in a pretty tough situation it was not only the crux of the whole trip in, in terms of how much I was challenged as a leader I guess but it was also one of my, one of my proudest decisions there in the midst of it all he felt like he'd screwed up He'd taken his one opportunity for perfection, and he'd just thrown it away. But there was something bigger. I think I spent most of my life like living in the future, thinking, well, things are shit now, but when I get there, it'll be awesome. And then when I got to the finish line where I thought everything would change, i.e. getting back to the coast of Antarctica, nothing changed. Life kind of carried on, really, and that was a, at the time felt like a blow, but now, of course, was a huge lesson. Nobel laureates say after they win the Nobel Prize, the, the day after is the worst day of their lives because they simply have nothing. They've reached that moment. And you have now been back for two years. You don't have an expedition planned. Tell me, tell me why. Tell me what's going on in that head of yours. <laughs> I think I'd sort of academically known that that, that was probably going to happen. And I was aware of stories of... Um, athletes particularly, people like Bradley Wiggins, you know, winning the Tour de France, Olympic gold a few weeks later, and, and then sort of nothing, actually nothing happens, nothing changes. And, and, and often there's this sort of paradox where, where achieving that sort of goal takes almost all, if not 100% of your energy and time and bandwidth, and, and therefore you are leaving 0% focus to think about what you're going to do afterwards. And if you did start planning what you're going to do, then, then you'd be beaten to it by someone else who wasn't planning and was totally focused on, on the goal. So so I was sort of aware of that kind of academically, but, but hadn't really thought about what it was going to be like. And, and this expedition had taken so many years just to get to the start line, and, and we'd postponed it several times in a row. You know, we just didn't have the money, didn't have the right team in place, didn't have the logistics ready to go, so all these different reasons. So we'd had all these setbacks, and every time there was a setback, I just became more and more and more motivated to, to you know, I just invested so much time, so much of my life 
trying to get this to happen that I just could not, would not ever give up. And um, someone said to me I think last year, they said, isn't it funny that, that, that success is often harder to deal with than failure? Because when you fail at something, the goal is still there. And you think, well, okay, I can do this differently. And, and it's certainly in my experience, you tend to be more motivated. You know, pick stuff up and try again. But when you succeed, the goal vanishes. And this, this thing that's been motivating you and driving you for, for, for however long it is, years in my case, um, suddenly is no longer there. And that was an extraordinary realisation. And I think it was compounded by this absolute physical, mental, emotional burnout. I mean, completely exhausted when, we, when I got back, or when we got back in, in February, late February 2014. I thought naively it would take a few weeks to recover and then I'd sort of get out, get outdoors and start training again and start working on something else. And it really took 10 months to feel like I was relatively back to normal in kind of physical terms and, and had my mojo back in terms of wanting to do exercise and be physical again and, and which is significant because most of my adult life my sort of identity has been as, as, a, as a unusual kind of athlete and so to have 10 months off which is what happened um, and 10 months of feeling like I had no interest in doing anything particularly physical. What did it feel like for you? What was that? What, what was that sort of sense of displacement like for you? Displacement is definitely the right word. It was, it was probably like being, being sort of fast forwarded into, into kind of extreme aging. It's probably like, you know, having a taste of what the being the 80 year old me is. Although I would hope to think that I'm still active, you know, as a pensioner. Whereas I had no inclination. It was, it was a totally alien feeling. Um, I remember thinking like, this is probably what most people feel like. Like I just, all I want to do is sit on the sofa and eat crap. You know, like I don't want to go for a run. What are you talking about? Why would I want to do that? You, you know, it's crazy. So, so I remember like, like having to keep a sense of humor about it. But, um, but it was also just this, this absolute exhaustion and, and this kind of brain fog. Which also meant that he couldn't nail the narrative of this extraordinary journey. He wasn't able to get his head around what had happened and how he had gone from the years and years of planning to landing on the ice to getting back home again. It was just, it was clearly going to take longer than I thought to figure out what had actually just happened and what it meant. And and I think I was puzzled by the fact that there hadn't been the the sort of public acclaim that I'd expected. Now, I, I wasn't doing it to become famous. That wasn't the motivation. But, uh, but you know, this this seemed to me like a pretty iconic British journey. Um, well, pretty iconic journey, full stop. But particularly, particularly British, because because of Scott and Shackleton, and it never done since. So we'd broken a lot of records. We'd finished the journey, that, you know, that Captain Scott died trying to achieve, and um, and it went almost unnoticed. He'd rewritten those rule books. He'd broken new ground. He'd proven himself, just like he'd always wanted. But the respect and the status that he felt he needed to be a worthy human being. It just wasn't there. It took me a while to realise that we'd done something that was so, so far removed from most people's frames of reference that that, that waiting for, I don't know, the, the general public to have to, to kind of recognise the significance of what we'd done was totally pointless. I would totally, you know, it was never going to happen. So it went almost under the radar, really, which now I'm grateful for because it, it's, it's pushed me into a whole different space. And I think if it had all kicked off and, you know... I don't know, was launched into a TV presenting career and given some sort of MBE or OBE or you know, knighthood or whatever. I, I just would have been a, this peculiar kind of treadmill that, that I would have been so caught up in that I wouldn't have had the opportunity or, or the kind of impetus to, to kind of reflect, I guess, you know, or, or for kind of re- reflection and, and introspection that I've had 
in the two years since getting back. And that's been a really, um, really important period because I'm, I'm now, I would say, happier, more content than I've ever, ever felt, despite not never getting stopped in the street to sign an autograph. So. <laughs> you said it took you 10 months to kind of get back out and do something. What was it that you did? It sounds completely decadent, but it was basically nearly three weeks in this am amazing house in Franschhoek in South Africa. It's a beautiful, you know, vineyards and, and on the edge of a big national park and just stunning part of the world, being totally spoiled, you know, sitting in the sunshine and, and just resting, which I hadn't really done for a, a long, long, long time, like properly unplugging, disconnecting um, and not, you know, not kind of stressing about something. It was just, it was, it was two and a half, three weeks of, of eating and sleeping and resting and reading and after about a week I, I suddenly thought well, I'd quite like to go for a run or a bike ride and just started doing more and more and more it just really started to feel like I was getting my my kind of fitness back and my health back and my, and my appetite for doing that kind of thing which I've been doing for, for years so it was um, it was a holiday really that, that did it and, and, I, and I came back from that trip um, yeah feeling like I'd finally re recharged my batteries in a way So does this mean Ben Saunders is retired? Interesting in the, in, the, in the kind of weird, like, ultra-ultra-endurance field that I'm in, I, I'm definitely not, um, weirdly, I'm just sort of getting into my prime physically, and I could carry on going for another 10, 15 years easily from a sort of a fitness and, and physiological point of view. But it was just really the realisation that I'd done what I wanted to do. I don't know, I guess I, I, I've spent 15 years now going a long way along a pretty narrow and pretty specialised niche, and, and, and I've kind of feel like I've taken it as far as I wanted to like I don't really feel I've got a lot left to prove in that field anymore no and, and really I'm not sure it is about proving anything anymore I, I think maybe when I started you know age 23 there was a lot of ego tied up in it and there was a lot of wanting to prove something to somebody I don't know what it was but um uh and to and to you know make a name for myself and show what I was capable of doing and yeah and I've definitely mellowed and matured a bit since well I would hope a bit since then this has been The Resilient, powerful stories about powerful people like you and me. I'm Alex Kratosky, and it was brought to you by flowerapp.com, because life happens.